Hi, it's Monday morning or afternoon, and uh, I'm going to try to knock this off earlier side of the week because I have to get ready for a lot of things later this week. This I have to go by my schedule. Uh, before I say anything else, I want to dedicate, I guess, today's uh, talk uh, to the memory of Ari Levenger, my brother, who passed away in uh, Shabbat in the year 2000. Uh, Different, same mother, different father from the after the Holocaust, um, and so I was just uh, actually giving a talk at his at his uh, son's home. Last Mosi Shabbos was it or two weeks ago Mosi Shabbos? So this would be for Ari. Um, that's number one. Number two, I'm as I mentioned before, I'm going to be in Boca this week, uh, this Shabbos. I'm actually getting there Thursday night, speaking somewhere on Friday, but uh, for those of you in the neighborhood, as I mentioned the other day. Um, if you want to hear something interesting, uh, Friday night we're doing a, I guess you call it an Onig. I'm speaking at the home of my host, uh, Zevendina Raynan, Dr. Raynan, at a 2225 Hollyhock Trail in Thornhill, and Thornhill uh, uh, Green. And it's not too far from the Big Show, and uh, it'll be... This uh, basic talk about the uh, book of Esther, McGill's Esther, from an angle that I don't think anybody knows about. Otherwise, I wouldn't bother you with it. And then on Shabbos Day, I'm going to be speaking, I guess, three times at the Young Israel, Boca Raton, uh, in the morning about uh, the Rambam and anti-Semitism in Israel, and the afternoon about Shadows and Chubas, maybe from the 15th century, but also up to Moshe Feinstein, in uh, questions with marriage and divorce and things like that, certain crises that popped up, there's even a Baltimore angle, and finally a child showed us about rationalism and Chazal and rationalism and their interpretations of the Chumash. So these are subjects that interest you and you happen to be in Boca on this coming Shabbos so that's where I'll be Friday night at the, at the Raiden's home at the address I just said, and uh, Shabbos day at the Young Israel Boca Raton. Uh, and if you're interested you can go to you know, my show website you'll see you can find the uh, the addresses up there. Okay, uh, I do want to thank those that uh, send in some contributions. As I said the other day, we appreciate all that. We're trying to, uh, you know, upgrade things around here. And I hope people will uh, continue to do so. Appreciate all, all the uh, help, the financial help that sends our way. That way enables me to continue this stuff. And now, without any further ado, I want to get down to business. I uh, heard a bunch of names, yard site names, and none of them really turned me on. And Ari Elbaum just was walking with me. He went through a whole bunch of, of a list. And all of a sudden, I heard one that I said, that's one I can definitely connect with. One of the most interesting, uh, Gedolim, I guess, uh, tragic and interesting in the last couple hundred years. And that's the Yad David, or David Sinsheimer, in Alsace-Lorraine, back uh, in the 1700s. And then time of Napoleon, he's very famous for that. So here we're dealing with uh, a type of jewelry that I've touched on here and there, but not in great detail. Uh, and this is French jewelry in the 1700s and early 1800s, in times of tremendous revolutions, literally the French Revolution. Rabbi Yosef David Sinsheim. You know, these Jews all have names of little towns, I and mean, that's what it is. It's like today, if somebody would have a name, London, or last name Warsaw, or last name Berlin. You know people like that, right? So, uh, you know, things like that. So, Frankfurter, you know, Hamburger. So, 
the Jews in that part of the world used to, you know, say this is your, your last name is a, like one of these real, really tiny, small towns in Western Germany. Here we're speaking about the area of the Rhine River, and we're speaking speaking specifically about someone who lived all his life in the Kingdom of France, and then the Revolutionary Period. That's what makes him so much. I mean, he's interesting in many respects, but I'm thinking of the listener and. To you, if I say, I, I know how it goes, if I say 18th century, 17th century, these words don't mean a lot to uh, a lot of the listeners out there. But they do mean a lot, actually, if you know what was going on in Jewish history at that time. So to get specific, here's someone who uh, was born in the early 1700s. It's Machlokas, how long he lived. And it actually makes a difference. Usually, I remember seeing this many times, they usually say his years are 1745 to 1812. But others say, no, it's really 1736 to 1812. So, like I say, to the average listener, like, who cares about that stuff? But if, from an intelligent point of view, it makes a difference how old somebody was when certain events befell them. If I told you a guy was in his 20s, that's one of them. If I told you a guy was in his 80s, it's a different story. So it's just interesting, I think, in that regard. Now, let me get specific over here. Uh, this is a very interesting person. Uh, Yosef David Sinsheimer was in uh, France, in Alsace. Now you told me, what is Alsace-Lorraine? If you look at the map, if any of you have a map, that's the part which is on the extreme right or west of France, and it's up against the Rhine River. The Kingdom of France, there used to be such a thing, the Kingdom of France, which was around for over a thousand years, was a kingdom in which, obviously, long ago there were Jews, because that Rashi lived there, for example. You know, Tosis lived there. But then the Jews in the Middle Ages were kicked out. Same way they were kicked out of Spain, so in somewhat similar fashion, they were kicked out of France way before they were kicked out of Spain. So the Jews were expelled from the Kingdom of France oh, in the 1300s, and then there were a few exceptions made in the 1400s, and so forth. Uh, so they got rid of them. And the reason is the French are a bunch of moms there. They couldn't stand the presence of the Jews, and so on and so forth. The kings were particularly bitter. It was that kind of Catholicism. In the beginning, it started out okay, and then after a certain king in the late 1100s, uh, Philip, uh, Philip Augustus, then the kings and the government turned against the uh, Jews. Fine, so there are no Jews in France. You're not allowed to live there. After all, the Jews don't have a right to live anywhere in Europe, as if the local Europeans give them a permission. As I always say, the Jews lived in Christian Europe on sufferance and of service, only if they could provide economic uh, benefits. And number two, the Christians can, can kick out whatever they want to. So the French simply exercise their option. So that means if you're going to the 1500s in France, basically there are no Jews. Now, then things changed. So how did they change? Two ways, A and B. One, some Muranos started moving there in the south, near the Spanish border. And I don't want to go into that parasha today, but the Muranos ended up establishing very, very slowly these small Spanish-Portuguese communities in places like Bordeaux and Marseille and San Sebastian and all that. That's one. But then, on the other hand, in the, basically in the late 15 and the 1600s, when France began to be ruled by the Bourbon dynasty, this would be Henry IV and Louis XIII, Louis XIV, not that these names mean anything to you, uh, then the French began a policy of trying to expand to the Rhine River, meaning have the French border be up to the Rhine River so they know it's easier to defend. Of course, it means France has to conquer and suppress all the peoples between France and the Rhine River, but that was the policy. 
during the 15th and 16th and 1700s. Now you just had a thumbnail sketch of French history. And they were 50% successful, particularly under King Louis XIV. The French were able to conquer the what, what you and I would call the southern part of the Rhine area, and uh, from Switzerland north, let's say 100, 200 miles. And uh, that means up to there, they annexed to France. And later they were able to add a little bit more Lorraine, but they were never able to do the rest. So the country you and I call Belgium today is a separate country. It's not part of France. And the, the rest of it still remained part of Germany, what they call the Rhineland. Uh, so it was German. And there have been wars fought over this back and forth, forth and back. But that's the way it went. So if you look in the map of Europe today, Alsace and Lorraine have remained part of France. Now, what do you do with the following fact? Alsace, this area, what we call today Strasbourg, and a whole bunch of, whole bunch of small villages and towns, very small villages and towns, were dotted all over the place with Jewish communities. You had a ton of very small Jewish communities, one after another, after another, after another. And these Jews have been there since Rashi. And before. And um, without going into details, when it was ruled by the Holy Roman Emperor, it was in his interest to keep the Jews there. And so, it's just an interesting situation. This is Minig Ashkenaz baby, the old Ashkenaz. When you hear the Minig of the Rhineland, that's the old Yekish. Right, the old, the original Yekish, I think. Minik Harinus. That's what they mean. They mean Alsace. Okay? So it's an area which goes back in Judaism and in Torah a long, long way. Okay? Uh, I don't expect the average person to know all the little towns over there. Why would they? But there's a, this is a place had a long, long Jewish history, especially in the Frum sense. All right, that's number one. So then all of a sudden the French conquered it. Now, what they could have done is just kicked everybody out. But that is not what the French chose to do. Because when they conquered this area, they still fought a whole lot of wars because the Germans tried to take it back. And, uh, I mean, a lot of wars. And so the result is that the French army always had, like, sort of, let's say, a tenuous hold. And from day one, since they conquered this area, the local Jews made themselves of service to the French army. They get them uh, food, horses, uh, ammunition, all that kind of junk. So, it's ironic. The French army came to rely pretty heavily, uh, whenever they're garrisoned all over Alsace, on these local Jews who simply made themselves of use. Consequently, although the French hated the Jews, and the French kings, like Louis XIV, really hated the Jews, but they found them of use, and therefore they never kicked them out of Alsace. So, it's funny. You don't have the right to live in France, but Alsace is something of an exception, but you never know. It was always tentative. In any minute, the king of France might change and might kick everybody out. Plus, in addition to that, the locals, the, the guy who lived in Alsace, were very anti-Semitic because the Jews are competitors and the Jews are clannish and stick together. And uh, the Jews got into the business, wherever they were, of, uh, you know, uh, being the local moneylenders. That was a classic way of making money, you know, and you charge interest. And uh, there you go. You know, all of a sudden, there's a lot of anti-Semitism caused by these objective situations. Uh, there were a lot of areas in the economy the Jews were not permitted to participate in, but then again, in the old-fashioned way, exceptions were made for people who were service to the army, and so you have this old Semishkite, which is unclear what exactly is the status of the Jews in Alsace, all during the 1600s and all during the 1700s. So, for the historians of this stuff, it's a lot of twists and turns. In the middle of all this was a big Yiddishkite, what do I mean by that? The Jews were poor, 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 with a few exceptions, a few richy riches. 
the people became richy rich is only because they got government contracts. Uh, the, the French hate them, but if you're very good at supplying the army and things like this, you can make money. And in the old classic style, you'd have Kehillas, and the Alsace was dotted with tiny Kehillas, and each one was a separate business, as you know. And uh, let's put it this way. Torah study was valued. His schools and yeshivas there, uh, and in Lorraine, which is the next door province in, in Metz, we've talked about it before. I mean, just to give an example, the Shagasai was there, you know. So you had a very, very unusual, interesting situation. Now, our hero, Yosef W. Zinsheim, was born in the middle of all this. I think the year is earlier, if you want, in my opinion. I think he was born in the 1730s. So here's a guy born smack in the middle of all this. In the 1730s, what you call Louis XV. He was the king of France from 1715 to 1774. These guys ruled a long time. Now, that's over 50 years, right? Now, uh, okay, so what's the story with this guy? He's, he's, a, he's a, a born, his father's like a rov in one of these little towns. I was in Trier, actually. And uh, he didn't go to yeshiva. A lot of times we see the Gedolim, they didn't go to Yeshiva, because Yeshiva sometimes can make it like a cookie cutter. Instead, he learned with his father. And his father was like a small town row, but you know, Talmud Chacham and all that. This is pure Yekish, right? Before the term Yekish existed. And um, and the father said like this, I want to teach you, not Yeshiva, and I'll teach you the right way of learning. What's the right way of learning? Go through Shas with me and certain parts of Shulchan Aruch, Pashup shot. What do I mean by Pashup shot? In the Gemara and the Rashi and the Tosas, and then whatever is shown him you need to know just a few basic ideas, not to be in, as we would say today, and know what the halach is at the end of the sugya, and then move on. And you know, in Chazer and all the rest of it. And he says this in the introduction to his famous book that I'll talk about later on. It's very, very interesting. I want to I want to read it to you because it's I find it extremely interesting. He says. That the Achasi and Osi Samosi, the Torah is my beloved. I was raised by my father, Asher Shimish Rabban Mohokan. He was the Tamachok we learned by other Gedolim. For who Hidrichani Menurai Belimit Hayosha Ramuskal. And he was the one who taught me since I was a, a child in a in a Yash in a straight derech and in a logical derech. With with a, a true Ian, meaning not a pilpul or anything like that, not a lumdus, just straight. What's the, the shitas of the rishonim in each in each uh, uh, and a little bit of the achronim. That's all. because my father used to tell me, It's not good for a kid at too young of an age to get into lumdus. Isn't that interesting? And it's the opposite of what we do today. It's the opposite of today. Today you have a kid. You say, well, he's in high school. Ninth grade, tenth grade, something like this. You have to have the Eun and the Lamdas, because when else are you going to get it? But meanwhile, you never did the first part, which is to go through the Gemara regular style. And I don't mean simply, you know, Daf Yomi. I'm talking about, you know, you're learning Gemara with the Gemara and the Rashi and the Tosas and, let's say, uh, one or two Rishonim, something like that, and, you know, the important part. And then you move on. Anyway, he went on to say, it's not good to get in this pulpit too early in life. And to try to go in all kind of, uh, you know, means all kind of lumdash drachim. Learn it straight and push it and emesdik from the rishonim. And only when you finished, let's say, shas or most of shas that way, so you learn the Gemara straight 
and then you learn the tour and the Shulchan Aruch straight, like that, then, like, uh, you know, once you've finished regular, then you go through Shas again, uh, and this time more be'in. And then you have to learn how to do the Lomdas and the Rishonim, the Gamas Achronim, plus the Achronim, because in order to do pilpul correct, I meaning the type of pilpul which is based on sound reasoning, it's very necessary for a posik. I think it's just a very illuminating kind of a statement in the, in, in, that you don't see usually in this farm. So what he means, of course, is let's say you're going to be a rov, and that's his intention, not to be a rosh hashiva and a magadshir or something like that, but to be an av base and a rov. So you have to pass in shalos. If you pass in shalos, how do you do that? So he said, well, you know, you look it up. Well, a lot of times, situation is such in which it's not so easy to look it up. Or when you look it up, it doesn't yield the answer that you're looking for. And then you want to say like this, let me go and see if I can be my ayin again. And based on the emistika reading, I repeat, an emistika reading of the Gemara and the Rishon Maldoresvet, can I come up with a different answer that would be better for this situation? If you can't, you can't. That's the difference between a firm person and a non-firm person. If you can't, you can't. But if you can, there's like a criminal negligence not to. So you, so basically, the idea goes like this. First you learn it straight, and then the second time you learn everything more lumdish, with the idea that you should not stick on, on uh, non-tenable suarez. I guess that's how we would say it today. I, I, I just think it's very interesting. And he goes on and on all this. And, uh, and he says that uh, you know a lot of people didn't have the good luck that I have. Uh, to have a father who led me in the right uh, way, and Kasher also Bale Hatshuvas Hakadmonim, the freer dika, the early Jews, they used to follow the, the right way. And anybody who doesn't learn this way, and you'll never be able to be a successful posek. Um, anyway, like I say, it's just just interesting. Now, um, so here you have somebody. Let's assume he's born in the seventeen thirty six. So, between 1736 and 1756, it's the old French regime. And he learns through this way, he says, the first 20 years of his life. And then, uh, in this small town, is a garnish, you know, there, there, there may be more boys in the yeshiva, local yeshiva, than there are Jews in the, in the town, in the village. And uh, wherever you go, you know, it is law and order, but the guy don't like you. That, that's the life of living at that time. And then when he was 20, he got married. Now, here it's interesting. Who did he get married to? Maybe the richest girl in in, in Alsace, or one of those. Uh, he he married the sister of, or daughter of a very well known uh, family from yesteryear. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, surf bear of uh, Middelsheim. Now these names don't mean anything to you, but uh, this is what you call still the in the period I'm talking about in the 1700s. You still had something called the court Jew, Hofjude, and that means. That the government has all kind of gazeras against the Jewish community, but there are people to whom they grant exceptional privileges. So no Jews allowed to live here, but this guy can. No Jew is allowed to engage in this and this business, but this guy and that guy can. Now, why would they make an exception for them? To put it in simple terms, these are the guys who are able to swing the government contracts, uh, particularly for the military. And so the family Surf Bear, which uh, he, which is French for uh, Tzvi Hirsch, or something like that, you know. Uh, used to call him Naftali Hertz. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, Surf is a, is a deer, right? So, uh, Surf Bear. Uh, this is a very famous family of successful army contractors. You get it? They organized 
all the local little Jewish schnooks, and they say, listen, we have uh, 50,000 uh, uh, garrison over here of French soldiers or something like that, and they had a lot of people, and that means we need oats for 50,000 horses a day, and we need food for 50,000 soldiers a day, and by the way, maybe you know somewhere where we can get boots at a cheap price, and therefore we can get people to, to, to manufacture the boots. This before you had factories, you had to like farm the thing out. The person who was what we call today an army contractor had to be very, very good at organizing his own private little economic networks. And this family, especially this guy, Surf Bear, Naftali Surf Bear, who, whose sister, our hero, married, was maybe the most famous of these French uh, court Jews. When I say court Jews, he didn't really hang around the court in Versailles of King Louis. But for the purposes of the government, he was considered uh, a very good citizen, shall we say, does great a service to the state, to the army, and therefore he was granted exceptional privileges. Now, in those days, a Jew was not allowed to live in a city in Alsace, like Strasbourg was a big city. And uh, that means if you're not allowed to live there, you're kind of cut off from being able to do business. So the Jews would say to the French government, uh, I know the people of Strasbourg don't want to allow us in, but you, Frenchies, should uh, let us go in there because, you know, we'll help the economy over here and you'll, the government will get more money. And the most you could get out of this was that the French government said the Jews, it's like having the coronavirus, you know, you have the Jewish virus. He said, well, the Jews can come into the town and can do business, let's say, for example, between the hours of 9.30 in the morning at Chreis and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But then the church bells would ring, ding, 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 and that's a sign, Jews, get the heck out of here. And they was enforced. So the locals put up with the presence of the Jews as a bitter necessity. They did not want them around. They did not want them around. Now, the Jews didn't like this, obviously. And this guy, Surf Bear, became famous because he was of such utility to the French government that he actually got the king to say he has the right to live in Strasbourg. And not only that, he got the king to say that it used to be for a Jew had to pay a special tax just for the privilege of entering the city in order to do business over there, and he got that abolished. Uh, it's much more complicated than I'm saying but it goes to show you what life was like under what they call the Ancien Regime, the old regime of uh, the pre-French Revolution France. And you had a lot of these types of Michigazin, and this is the world the Jews inhabited. This is the world the Jews inhabited. So most of the Jews are dirt poor, but a few people are rich. And um, the bottom line is that they were able to uh, uh, you know, live however they did in that, in that way. What's interesting to you and me is in these small communities struggling against poverty with a lot of Jewish beggars and a few richy riches at the top, they did maintain a very interesting and intense Jewish culture. By that I mean that they uh, had a very old-fashioned frumkite in which you have like a Hokaris HaToro and the small villages would have, you know, haters, uh, even for a few students, and when they were able to, yeshivas, when I say yeshiva, yeshiva could be what we call today a high school, yeshiva could be what we call today a post-high school, you know, and sometimes an advanced yeshiva. It's, it's just interesting. These small communities were dotted with little places and people were learning Gemara. And they've been doing that since the time of Rashi. And uh, they had their own type of Yiddish. And there was a certain frumkite of a classic old-fashioned type. Not the type that we have today. The, the type of yesteryear of our ancestors, uh, if you're Ashkenazic. And it was in this uh, you know, environment that this sort of life flourished for better or worse. And uh, this surf bear guy is disinterested. That's a whole separate schmooze. He hooked up with Moses Mendelssohn to try to get an upgrade in the civil rights of the Jews in France. He was only moderately successful. 
but if you're this young guy, Yosef David Zinsheim, who we're talking about today, so fine, uh, it's the 1750s, you're 20 years old, you married the sister of this guy that I was speaking about, money is not an issue, and uh, in other words, why would they marry a poor boy like this? Like you say today, I don't mind supporting my son-in-law, if he's going to be something, right, if he's going to be something, if it's going to be mediocre, I don't know, but if it's going to be somebody chashev, you know, like the next gadol, uh, then even the richy rich families will do that, and everybody could tell that the person I'm talking about, Yosef Dovazinsheim, is destined to be like a, a, a next gutter, which which happens. So it's just one of those interesting old fashioned ways of yesteryear, in which what they call in German building on visits, that you would combine money with uh, with culture. In this case, the Jewish version of it, the, uh, a girl from rich family would marry a, a, a boy from a poor background, rabbinical background, who's definitely going to be, to use modern language, the next Moshe Feinstein or something like that. You know, that's how it went. And so here's somebody then, who for the next, uh, let's see, 1756, for the next 30 years, 35 years, um, had it okay. So from the, in his 20s, and his 30s, and his 40s, he had a grand old time, because um, the rich family actually was able to support him, and he had a plan. What do I mean by the plan? He writes about this in the introduction to his book. And he says, uh, I got the idea that now I'm finishing, I finished Shas once with my father. Now I'm going to go through the face like a second time, you might say. And, uh, and, and do it, you know, like the next layer of Iyun, shall we say. Um, and always keeping notes. And when he was around 30 years old, um, then he said, like, he got the idea, what does he want to do with this education? He wants to write, compose, uh, shall, what shall I call it? A cheater book. He wants to write a book in which he has almost in every page in Shas, uh, like cross-references. What I call like the, uh, what do you call it? Um, what's it again from uh, Rabbi Hillman? Or Hayashar, that type. Or as he puts it, the Knesset HaGadola, the Aaron. I think maybe some listeners are familiar with the Knesset HaGadola, which gives you Marmacomas and little interesting things. They're encyclopedic when they're uh, uh, on every page in, in the uh, Shulchan Aruch or in the Shas. I'm going to use modern terminology, uh, Masifta. Does everybody learn with the Masifta now? I mean, I know, and I'm from the old school, but that's the new thing, isn't that right? So you learn with the Masifta, all your work is done for you. Uh, you want to know any, anything in the, in the Rishonim, in the Akronim, and it's all there. Uh, and it's very useful. You know, It can be a crutch, but it's very useful. Because how are you supposed to know that something is mentioned you know, in the note of Yehuda or the Ksav Sofer or something like that. But the Masifta will do it for you. That's exactly the, the, the attraction of this. So those are results of a kind of mentality in which the person is not so much concentrating on, I want you to share my particular Kiddush in, the, in this Tosus or that Rush or something like that. That's one way. But rather, the person is saying, I want to bring Clarkite clarity to the student and um, I'm doing all the hard work for you. And if you come across, let's say, for example, a Gemara, which is discussed in some famous house in Shuba Sefer that you would never know about, or uh, some other Rishon or Akron, that's a better one, Akron, uh, chances are you won't know about it. I have t- undertaken this a task in a comprehensive manner. And as he writes there, he says, you know, the Knesset Dole didn't do a complete job. How could he? Uh, and I intend to do a better job. So here's someone who's really uh, working to, uh, as we would say, to benefit the public. Um, it's just interesting. 
in a small town in France. And when he's uh, about 50, if my years work out, uh, he wanted to do a third time to do it even uh, more Ian, uh the third level. Uh, so a grand uh, thing in Shaz. You can imagine that he was surrounded by smart boys. They were attracting. He must have been a good teacher. You know, a charismatic teacher. And his brother-in-law paid for him to have his own yeshiva. Uh, not bad what you can... <laughs> it's not bad if you can get that kind of work. But on the other hand, the guy was 50 years old. He clearly had a track record. And, uh, you know, it makes total sense. Like I said, well, he's not wasting his time. And so the best boys of the province would go there. And uh, then, once you know, you start brachas and you go through shas, little by little, this is not daf yummy. <laughs> this is a different thing. This is, you know, you commit yourself for seven years or however long they did it, and whatever you learn, you're learning to be in, but in a highly systematic and organized way. First, learning the Gemara Ashinyatosis, then in his way, you have the very systematic approach of the correct Rishonim, and then in his way, he would always compare it with the relevant Achronim and obviously discuss it in there. It's a, I don't know, that's, it's just, just interesting, and remember, he doesn't have to, uh, he doesn't need anybody, uh, what do you call it, a, a money raiser, or anything, because the whole thing was bankrolled by the brother-in-law, who was a multimillionaire, he could afford it. And this is, so basically, um, until 1789, so let's say, if I'm right, till, till he's in his early 50s, life is good. And, by the way, uh, he was a real player at that time, he's in the Nodabi Huda. Uh, for example, the Nodabi Huda was published in 1776, uh, round one, Nadura And the Nodabi Huda, for those who know, is Shalos and Shuvas, but very heavy in the Lumdas of, of the old school. And he's in the second volume of the Nodabi Huda, where he writes a whole bunch of questions to, to the Cheska Landau, saying, I have a caution what you said here, I have a caution what he gave you the Lumdas, and it was published in round two of the Nodabi Huda, meaning he was machshiv what this guy says in terms of uh, real questions about, uh, you know, the lumdas that he's raising in the Nodavi Huda. Uh, it's just interesting. I mean, I noticed this many years ago. I remember he, he said he had a problem with something that he said about Erevin, and then another thing about Shliach, uh, what was it again? Nodavi has a whole thing about Shliach for, to, to, to a divorce woman uh, by force in certain cases with a Shliach. Anyway, and, you know, all this lumdas just stuff. See, he was a player. He also has a Shiloh or two to the Shagasari. So it is a guy who lives right near the Shagasari. Shagasari was from the 1760s on in, uh, in Metz, which is not far away. It's in Lorraine. It's also in the Kingdom of France. And here's somebody who probably lived 40, 50 miles away, something like that, I don't know the distance. And uh, probably what I would imagine, in my opinion, was probably the, the number one Talmud over there after the Shagasari. So it's just, you know, he lived in this whole world that I just described which from his um, perspective must have been a perfect world. Uh, now, then things change. You have to have the mazel to live in the right times. Uh, to give you an example, imagine somebody was, was a rabbi in Germany and was very productive and successful, and then Hitler showed up. You know what I'm saying? And the whole world turned upside down. So that's what happened to our hero, to Yosef David Sinsheim, because in 1789 which was three years after he started this bankrolled yeshiva, the French Revolution broke out. Now, the French Revolution is very complicated. But for our purposes, it took a couple years for them to develop along certain lines. And right away, things are moving to the left in France and uh, with all kind of unforeseen circumstances. And this is where it really gets interesting because the 
French um, wanted the, the revolutionaries um, little by little came to the conclusion that they want to completely change the system and for first of all France will no longer be a uh, Christian state it'll be a secular state first they had the king and then they killed the king but it'll be a secular state well it would be a secular state that's the first time in history you ever had such a thing called a secular state there is never was every country in the world until 1789 every country was a, a, a religious state uh, maybe the United States which was starting at that time was a was the exception but every other country was a religious state a, a Christian a Catholic state a Protestant state a Muslim state obviously when the state is organized on a religious basis people who are not part of the religion don't have any right to rights listen we believe the same thing it was run on a Torah state you know theoretically that somebody wasn't Jewish couldn't hold Sorara couldn't hold full you know it'd be a Garrett what do you call Tosha maybe uh, the, no, that the status of people who are not Jewish would be very problematic. Wouldn't be Pushit. So, uh, this is the same thing happened in Europe. But now in France, they said, no, 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 we're changing it because of the French Enlightenment to a secular state. So then if that's the case, anybody who lives in France is a citizen, even the Jews. Well, they didn't want to give the Jews civil rights, but they did. You know, it's a story. By 1791, they gave the Jews complete and total civil rights. And so it was a, a brand new day. However... Here's the sting with the honey. They said, uh, you know, we give the Jews of France citizen rights, but we expect you to be Frenchmen first and Jews second, if you want to put it bluntly. And uh, now imagine this hits the Jews of such a from and old-fashioned traditionalistic mindset, such as the Jews of Alsace, and somebody like Joseph W. Sinsheim. Uh, they didn't know what to do with this, uh, because right away the French government abolished the Cahillas, at least in the old sense, and uh, now, now, what's the story with Gittin? What's the story with uh, all kinds of things out there? Is it, a, is it a secular process, which is run by the secular authorities? Does the Jewish community have any power in there? Does the Jewish community still collect taxes or not? Theoretically, the Jewish community should not collect the tax. Every citizen should do it on a, uh, to pay to the French government, like we do in America, for example, today. But they were still sufficiently anti-Semitic to say, the Jewish community can't exist, but for collecting taxes, it can exist. You know, uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitism still out in the, in the air. Now, um, then things got even worse. Because then start with the Golden Reign of Terror. When Robespierre, if you know your French revolutionary history, I don't know, you probably don't. Let's say a group of radicals seized power. And uh, a whole bunch of things happened. They killed the king and the queen. Europe declared war on France. The French government went crazy. And they started doing the guillotine and, 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 and chopping off the heads of thousands of people all over the country. A bloodbath took place, and one of the enemies of the regime was the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church uh, was deprived by the revolution of its karka and the king and the queen, where the heads of the Catholic Church and they were killed, and uh, since the regime, the government under Robespierre, uh, the reign of terror knew the Catholic Church was against them, they chopped off the head of all the priests, and uh, they massacred the nuns, and they uh, confiscated the churches. So a very big anti-religious wave swept France, which was anybody protested against, and then there were Catholics that did, were ruthlessly suppressed and, oh my goodness, tortured. They literally were chopped up, burned, roasted, and toasted. I mean, you think I'm just using that as a witticism, but if you go to trouble looking up, you'll see it really happened. And uh, sparing you the details, a huge wave of secularism, anti-religionism swept the country. Now, the Jews could say, what's it got to do with us? You're talking about the Catholic Church. That is true. But with collateral damage, because when all this hit Alsace, so uh, 
just like they burned the crosses and all this kind of stuff, they said, the heck with it, let's do it to the Jews also. So they burned all the Sefer Torahs, and they burned all the Swarm. He mentioned this, by the way, in his Akdamatur Sefer, that they burned all the Swarm. He had to hide his writings. Some of them were found and burned. It wasn't a pure anti-Semitism per se, but that's the effect of it. Like I say, the Jews are collateral damage of this wave of extreme anti-religionism. And uh, just like the Catholic Church, Catholic priests can't hold services, now the Jewish rabbi can't hold services because religion is the enemy of state. You hear what I said? Religion is the enemy of state. Oh my goodness. And so Deshiva disintegrated. His brother-in-law, the rich Jew, was arrested and died in jail. Or he was let out and then died shortly afterwards in 1794. And basically the years of the 1790s, when by my calculation, our hero was in his 50s and early 60s, right? And if I'm wrong, then he was in his late 40s and 50s, you know, depending whether he was born in 1736 or 1745. Now you see why it makes a difference. Uh, all of a sudden, his whole world is given chayshech, and uh, he had to flee, and he couldn't live in the small town. See, the Jews used to live not in the cities, but in small villages near the cities. That's how it worked. Uh, unless you were highly exceptional, like that rich guy I mentioned. Uh, and so you couldn't live in Strasbourg, which is a big business center. So the Jews lived in what they call Bishheim, which is eh, five miles, something like that, not more, from the city. And that's where you could go uh, every day to, you know, to, to uh, the market or something like that, twice a week. And uh, the, in Bishheim was his yeshiva. So for a few beautiful years, this town, which probably had 1,500 people, and probably 500 were Jewish. That's how it worked. Uh, had this flourishing yeshiva, which was paid by the rich guy. And then it all collapsed. And then the revolutionaries took over, and all of a sudden you can't be from a Bishheim, uh, just like you can't be a from Catholic, you know. And uh, well, France went crazy. Now, this lasted for, uh, eh, what was it, a year or two? Until there was a reaction against the extremity of the regime. Uh, and Robespierre and all these guys were overthrown, and they themselves were guillotined. It was called the Thermidor reaction. Now, you understand, during this period, life got really tough, because the French revolutionary government wanted to do radical uh, reorganization of society. So just to give you one example, one of the things they did was they say we're abolishing Sunday and every 10th day of the month is Shabbos. is the day off. Right? It's more logical as they saw it. That means forget Sunday but also forget Saturday. And so you got to go to work on Shabbos. And if it's seen that you won't turn on the lights or something like that on Shabbos, you could get killed. I, I'm telling you, it was a crazy time. Right? Only when they had the reaction did they go back to the normal calendar, and then Sunday became Sunday, and, and Saturday became Saturday, became a little bit easier. So he lived through a time in which, from a firm perspective, was a reign of terror. From a firm perspective, was a reign of terror, and he had to flee the town. I remember he ran away to Strasbourg, which is a bigger city, tried to run the yeshiva there, but then it got too tight over there, and then he lived like the Rambam, moving from town to town, village to village, just tr trying to stay for a short time in any place so that the cops shouldn't even know you're alive. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? It's a, maybe even went to Switzerland, I don't remember. It was really tough for him. And what happened to the gold old world? Get used to it, it's a new world. And uh, things became finster, as they say, you know. And so, uh, this is the way things went, until sanity and normalcy was restored to France. How did that happen? Well, basically, Napoleon took over. First in this form, and then that form. And Napoleon restored uh, law and order, a normalcy, as I would say before. They stopped suppressing the religions, but it was clear that the state is going to be absolutely supreme. 
and eventually Napoleon made himself the emperor of the French. That was in 1804, I guess. And uh, from then on, you know, you're dealing, for the rest of his life, he had to deal with Napoleon. So, uh, at that point, Napoleon, when he took over France, so first of all, he won all the battles. Okay, that was the basis of his power. So he was a military genius. Uh, but that's not all he was. He was also a civilian genius, Napoleon was, in that he thought very logic. He was like a math guy. He had been an uh, engineer student in the artillery school. And uh, he thought through things very uh, precisely and logically, and uh, ruthlessly and cynically. That's who Napoleon was. And so he reorganized the French administration and French education and French this and French that. Even today they use the Code Napoleon as the base of the law system, although they've modified it, of course. And uh, he wanted to organize everything very logically under the aegis of the state, including religion. So according to Napoleon, the state is supreme and the religions are out there. You can't, it's, it's not going to die to go fight people who want to be religious. That's just, a, that's just a natural tendency. People are going to be religious. Moreover, if, if you play your cards right, uh, if you play your cards right, then um, the religion will support the state. So if you make sure all the priests say in the church, support Napoleon, then all of a sudden, you know, religion is a good thing for the state. So you see what I'm saying? He wanted to use religion as a tool of his power, which he's not the only one who did it. So most of his efforts were concentrated in the Catholic Church. That worked out 50-50. What I mean by that is the church agreed to some of his stuff. They were uneasy about the other stuff. So he arrested the Pope. You probably don't know your history that well, but Napoleon arrested the Pope and had him as a prisoner in a certain castle in France during his reign until he fell from power. Uh, that's who Napoleon was. Okay, Now, that's what the Catholic Church. If you're Protestant, which is the other type of Christian, then it was all very good. Napoleon said you can be Protestant and do all that, but the only thing is you have to organize yourselves under a Pope. I, the Protestants, don't have a Pope, so they call it a National Church Council. But the National Church Council is governed by the French state. In other words, they have to get everything approved by the government. So there's a minister of religious affairs, and he's really the boss. And the Catholics and the Protestants all have to listen to him. And so they can go and do their church stuff, provided the state always gives approval. If the state doesn't get approval, they have to change. And the Catholic, I'm, I'm sorry, the Protestant system was called consistoire, the consistory, which is a Protestant term for organizing their religion on a top-down basis. There's a council of big shots at the top, and they give the order to all the Protestant church, churches in, in France. They appoint the ministers, they make the rules, and so on and so forth. And that's what the Protestants did. And they were basically kind of happy because until the French Revolution, Protestantism was suppressed in France. If you're a Protestant, you get killed, you get in a lot of trouble. Okay, that's the guy. Now let's take a look at the Jews. If you're Napoleon, you want to do the same thing to the Jews. There's a Jewish religion out there, you want to make it totally under the state, you want to organize a Jewish pope or something like that, a consistory, but Napoleon was a very smart fellow. He was no dummy. And he said, and we have these documents, and he said, look, the Jewish religion is different uh, because it's also a nationality. He's not wrong about that. The Jews are not like the Protestants or the Catholics. The Protestants the Catholics are French by nationality and culture, but it's a question of what their religious beliefs are, how do they approach the concept of God. The Catholics in one way, the Protestants in another way. But as far as being French, they are totally French. Now let's contrast that, Napoleon said, with the Jews, especially the Jews in Alsace, who speak Yiddish or Klanish or They regard themselves as a separate nation. Isn't that reflected in their davening? Isn't that reflected in their whole messias? 
don't they regard themselves as members of a club and all the other Frenchmen as a bunch of Goyim who are like the other? Now, he's not wrong about that. So how do we, um, you know, make this work that the Jews can survive within the state? Or do we have to kick him out? Do we have to kill him? Now, the point is, I don't want to go down in history as some kind of a Hitler because he wasn't that way. On the other hand, he wants to control the Jews the same way he controls the other religions. So that this whole welter of ideas Napoleon form, formulated what he called the idea that the state should um, control Judaism. But, but first we have to clarify the relations between Judaism on the one hand and France, the state, on the other. And for this purpose, he said, I'm going to go and, uh, and call in uh, a bunch of Jewish leaders and they'll have a formal session and they will come up with the doctrines of Judaism vis-a-vis the Goyim, vis-a-vis the state. And these will be the official beliefs of Judaism, and anybody who doesn't adhere to this won't be considered a Jew, and uh, the state will then take appropriate measures. So basically, you can have a shul, provided you agree to certain hashkafic points that conform to the French ideas. If you don't, then not. So, for example, if you consider, like I just said before, you're a chassid, and you say, heck with the Goyim, and I'm just living here for my own benefit, then get out of France. You understand? Get out of France and go to jail. We're not interested in you. On the other hand, if you say like this, Yehudi would say, how's it go? Yehudi would say, Secha, it's Adam, say, Secha. If you say like this, I'm really French. That's who I am. Happens to be that my religion is Judaism, but it's only in the area of religion. Anything other than the religion is, uh, is French. And so the only difference between me and my neighbor is they go on Sunday and pray to Jesus, I go on Shabbos, Saturday, and I pray to the God of the Jews. Other than that, I speak French, I feel French, I join the French army, I do all that kind of stuff. I genuinely and totally and honestly assimilate in every area except the area of religious affiliation. Which is a new thing for Jews, because the Claudius world never felt like that. Claudius world said like this, we happen to be strangers in a strange land, we're here until the Mashiach comes, we're our own people, uh, I feel more kinship a uh, old-fashioned Jew would say with a fellow Yidden with a, uh, a fellow compatriot and you know all that kind of thing so Napoleon in order to get to, to get things his way he uh, his government set up a thing on which they called in I, I don't remember how many 50 or 100 something like that Jewish uh, representatives from communities throughout France and Italy because at that time Italy was annexed to France uh, he picked the people his officials picked the, uh, the people, and he called this a Sanhedrin. This is a name, because he, he had this way of making things, you know, cool, and, uh, you know, uh, to romanticize. And this is the famous uh, Sanhedrin of Napoleon, in which he called all these uh, big, biggies together, and he asked them, uh, of, you know, they gave him an official uh, questionnaire that they're supposed to fill out on the Hashkafic issues that interest the French state, Okay. And uh, it was understood that if, you know, if the Jews give the wrong answers, then obviously Judaism is incompatible with Frenchism. You understand? Literally, it's incompatible with Frenchism. And so he asked, I remember, 12 questions, something like that, 15 questions, not of general variety, uh, but of things that are, like I say, specifically Nogea to the question of the compatibility or non-compatibility um, with, with, with uh, Frenchism, as, as it were, Okay with Frenchism, and, uh, you know, what their doctrines are, as we would say today, uh, things like that. Oh, yeah, he, called, he, made, he made 71 members, that's what it was. 
He made 71, just like the Sanhedrin of old. Uh, that's, like, that's the interesting way that he uh, put it in there. And uh, I remember he asked him, you know, uh, and, and, you know, some ra- people from Italy, basically, there's a few rabbis, and the uh, rest are richy riches, you know, and usually people that Napoleon was confident they'll assimilate, you understand? Because there were plenty of Jews already like that. And so you need the rabbis to give it a gushpanka, a heksher. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, what, what can I tell you? Uh, that's not the direction that he wants things to go. He wants things to go that they say the kind of answers that he wants, and then he can say, see, the Jewish leaders and Jewish representatives agreed that Judaism is basically uh, compatible with France, which means that the Yiddishkeit is, is nichna to the French. So what kind of questions did he ask? Uh, is a Jew allowed to have polygamy? Uh, because the French law says no. Is a Jew, uh, what's the story with a get? Are you divorced when the Basin gives you a get? Or when the French courts give you a civil divorce? Uh, do you allow a Jew to marry someone who's not Jewish? Um, do, do you consider Frenchmen really your brothers and sisters or just a bunch of guys who are strangers? Uh, you know, uh, uh, what do the Jewish laws say about Frenchmen and Christians? In other words, does the Akum stuff apply to a notary? Um, do the Jews consider themselves really uh, French? You know, um, uh, who has the final say in what's considered Jewish? What's a rabbi exactly? What is a rabbi? Uh, who chooses these guys? What kind of authority do they have? Is this a, a law or a minhag? Uh, what kind of, you know, um, what kind of parnosas are prohibited Jews by the Jewish religion? For example, Kenny Ham, you know. Uh, what's the story with ribbis? You understand? Uh, are Jews allowed to take ribbis from a Jew? Or are they allowed to take ribbis from somebody's Gentile? Because the French in Alsace were always saying the Jews are ripping everybody off with the interest, you know, foreclosing on uh, people's property when they can't pay, which is true. So I'm just trying to tell you, it's very tricky. And Napoleon was a smart dude. And basically, he did some investigation, and they said like this, if you want this thing to look real, and not just a, a, a puppet show, that, you know, people just saying whatever Napoleon said will we'll do, then the other Jews won't listen to it. If you want something real, then uh, you got to get this guy, David Zinsheim. Uh, because he's the real, like, to use modern terminology, he's the Shlomon Zalmanabach, he's the Ramosha Feinstein, you know? He's the one that all the Jews, if, he, if, if he's on board, everybody knows it's really a Jewish thing. And so this person, who had survived the persecutions of the Reign of Terror, and uh, by the way, I forgot to tell you that when he was running away from town to town, he says he didn't even, he, he was so surrendered, you know, he was so scared, he couldn't even remember Mishnah's Balpeh, you know. So you can just imagine what that's like. And uh, he said, I'm making an oath that if I ever survive, I'm going to publish my stuff. And that became what you call Yad David. That's why it became a classic uh, safer in many volumes. Uh, this was like in the late 1790s. But now I'm already talking about 1806, 1807, something like that. And Napoleon is in full power. And uh, these guys have to give answers. Now, from day one, it was clear that you have the Haredim and they have the 99% that are not from. Yeah, people are David Zinsheim and a few other rabbis. And then you had these, uh, what, what you and I would today would call conservative rabbis, not orthodox, and the Balabatim by and large, a bunch of jerks. Just to give you an example I'm talking about, the first session when they're supposed to um, have the vote on who is a member, uh, you know, what the French government required as a member of the group, so uh, Saturday, 
right? So the rabbi said, listen, tell the government to make it on, on Sunday or Monday. They'll say, oh no, can't tell the government. Napoleon, if you tell him the first day that he offered to have the official ceremonies on Saturday, you don't even show up on Saturday, it looked too Jewish. And so they just all came. You understand? They rode and they drove, as we say today, and they assigned the papers on Shabbos. And the Redovans, in some of the others, they had to write the answer, to assign the paper on, on Friday and have it brought there before Shabbos and all this kind of stuff. You know, it, it was just, just, just bad news. He had all this uh, uh, tensions, let's put it this way, from uh, day one. I remember also there was a time they had to meet the French officials on Cholamoid. Because the French government was probably deliberately insensitive and had these meanings on days that are bad for the Jews. And there's a question, can you shave? You understand? Uh, Tiglachas on Cholamoid. And uh, Dr. Zinsheim said no. And all these rich guys said, the heck with you. And they did it anyway. And, you know, what was he going to do? Put him a chem? He can't do that. And so it was a very difficult situation that he faced. Um, and he was the only, I would say like this, Adam Godot on the Sanhedrin, but he was, right? But he, but he, he really was. He was up there with the Hassam Sofer and all these other pe big people at that time. And so he had a very, uh, what's the right word? Walk a tightrope, shall we say, right? Walk a tightrope. Um, and he, they had to draft uh, letters and uh, responses to Napoleon in which he, you know, fudged it as much as possible. Let's put it this way. He used very fine language, fine distinctions. So, for example, is the Jewish religion opposed... I remember this. Jewish religion opposed to intermarriage. No, 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 you can have intermarriage. From a halachic perspective, we, you know, we can't perform that ceremony. But a Jew can totally get a civil ceremony, you know, like that. As, you know, so you understand what he just said. He said, you know, from the... If you frame it that way, from the Jewish perspective... They don't recognize uh, such a thing. But, you know, if, if, if people want to do it in the French law, you can do it. Because what's he supposed to say? What's he supposed to say? You, you understand? Uh, and things like that. Do you consider the Frenchmen your brothers or the Jews? Oh, the Frenchmen are the brothers. Yeah? Like, what are you supposed to say? And uh, by the time it's over, things were drafted in such a way that, you know, it was enough to satisfy Napoleon. Now, he was no dummy. He knew that they don't mean this 100%. Certainly the Rabbonim. Certainly, Dovid's in time. But he said, you know, if they'll publish this and sign it, and then we'll organize the Jewish religion along the lines of a consistory with a top council at the top, and, you know, give orders to all the synagogues at the bottom, and uh, this will be part of Judaism, in other words. The, just like you had Tachonis in the time of Sanhedrin of old, now you have Tachonis in the Sanhedrin of Paris. I mean, that's what he said. And this will be part of Judaism, and uh, then they can be, what's the right word, uh, uh, fit into the French culture in the French state. And so he just had a terrible time in all this, but he did what he had to do. Uh, the only other big rabbi was Rishmael Cohen of Mudd, and it was like in his 80s, and couldn't attend. He was also a godal, but all the others were losers. And um, the result was this very tricky business in which they came out and said Napoleon is the, is the supreme uh, person, and France is the best country and the highest Madrid in the world, and Judaism just happens to be a certain religious uh, group within France, and basically they gave their okay for the assimilation. That's the general idea of it, although anybody with a brain, including Napoleon, knew they didn't really mean it, or let's put it this way, he didn't mean it. You know what I'm saying? The rich guys meant it, but he didn't mean it. And so France launched on its famous uh, policy of heavy assimilation of the Jews that uh, ravaged French Jewry in the 19th century. Then this all came out like in 1806, 1807, so the person I'm talking about would be 70, 
okay? About 70. Uh, he's having a hard time. Napoleon, as I said before, set up now something called the, the Jewish consistory. This is like the uh, Vatican of the Jews. And Napoleon wasn't stupid, so he said, I guess, in order to give us any kind of validity whatsoever, I'm going to make this Rabbi, uh, David Sinsan to be the chief rabbi. Because uh, even though it would be a government employee, and it's usually what it's called Rav Mitam, that is appointed by the government for their purposes, but he's got the natural authority, uh, because he's the biggest Talmud Chacham out there, he's the biggest Talmudist, and that'll give some oomph to this uh, consistory, as they say, to the new organization, French Jewry. And so you have a crazy situation. For the last five years of his life, because he died in 1812, last five years of his life, he's sort of like a prisoner, if you get it. He lived in Paris, and he's officially the chief rabbi of France. He didn't want to be. And, you know, all the communities, based on the Napoleonic system, if they have any questions in ritual manners, you know, about uh, kidneys and all different types of shalas, getting conditioning, one with anything, they sent it to him. You really did have a posek there. So when he gave his replies, they really were, they really honestly were piske alocha, but he publishes then his chidushim monshas, which he calls minchas oni. And why is minchas oni? Oni, I'm being tortured. I don't like my existence. I don't have any time to learn. I'm stuck here like in a, in a golden cage, as it were, and it's affliction. The minchas oni, so it's his, his uh, chidushim on sugis ashas, but he's like sending a message. You know, I live in a big house, and, every, and I have a coach and all the rest of it. I hate it. I hate it. But he was stuck. He was a prisoner of Napoleon in his way. And the best proof of what I'm saying is that um, when he died in 1812, which by my calculations would make him about 75 or so, 76, um, by other calculations he'd be in his late 60s. Uh, when he died, in, in, since he's the chief rabbi of France, he's buried in the Geisha Cemetery because he's a, a top official of the government. And what are the Jews going to say? Ooh, you can't bury him in a Geisha cemetery? You understand? They, they can't do that. And so you end up with this tough situation. He's, he's still buried there today. They've never been able to take him out. I saw once online, some Hasidim said they're going to make a kidnap thing and take the body out. They're not doing that. And so if you ever want to see where this famous Godel was buried, he's buried in a nice uh, tomb in the uh, Christian cemetery, in the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, which speaks volumes about, like I said before, you know, being in prison in a cage of gold, in a cage of, diamond, a cage of diamonds. The truth is, there's more to say on this, and I wish I had the time, but I see I'm literally running out the maximum recorded time here, even though I went beyond what I usually go. And so I'll just uh, close it down over here. Somebody with a brilliant but tragic figure, a very tragic figure. Uh, you, have to, you have to have the models to live in the right time, but I'm closing this out now.